everyone, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lali Arakoglu. Hello! According to the Lesbian Bar Project, which works to catalog and protect lesbian bars, there are just over 15 left across the U.S. The bars, which serve as a safe space for the larger LGBTQ community to gather, have been hit hard by the pandemic. To talk about their importance and a way forward, we're joined by Lisa Menachino, owner of Cubby Hole, one of New York City's three remaining lesbian bars, and Samantha Allen, traveler contributor and author of Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. To start off, I actually just want to ask quite a simple question, which is what place have lesbian bars served in your lives over the years? When I first came out back um, early 90s, the lesbian bar was really the only place you can go to meet anyone romantically or socially. And so that's the way, you know, lesbian bars were important to me. Um, it's changed since then with the advent of technology and, you know, our assimilation being accepted in the broader community. I think um, the need for a lesbian bar to meet, socialize with people like you um, is different because now you can go, you can, you're, a lot of people are out at work, at least in the major cosmopolitan cities anyway. A lot of people are out at work. You can go to a straight bar and meet someone. I mean, it's just, people are less in the closet. So, the lesbian bar is now just a place where you go, you know, before a date or after a date or just to socialize with other people like you. So it's changed a bit from what it meant to me back then. Out of interest back then in the 90s, what was the place that meant something to you? Well, even before I worked in Cubby Hole, Cubby Hole became Cubby Hole in 1994, but it was called DT Fat Cats. So I used to come, it was like a year before it changed to Cubby Hole. So I came to DT Fat Cats first. And then the year after, I used to come to Cubby Hole. And then um, Cubby Hole was, you know, not just because it's mine now, but I, I always loved Cubby Hole. It was just always friendlier, I found. But I, I remember back then, there were so many places to go. You had so many choices. And um, it, it, it just does my head in that there's, there's only like 15, 16 left. And... When I first had it, I was like 21, and the first lesbian bar that I went to is now a Starbucks. <laughs> I forget what it was called. It was either called the Duchess or Pandora's Box or something, but it closed, and it, it's a Starbucks now. <laughs> and Samantha, what has your experience with lesbian bars and queer spaces been like throughout your life? Yeah, so, you know, I'm an openly trans woman. I came out in my mid-20s. The first time I ever went to a lesbian bar, I was deep in the closet. All of my friends in college were lesbians and queer women, which maybe should have been a clue. They took me to Henrietta Hudson one night, I believe. And that that was kind of, uh, you know, my shell-shocked. I come from a conservative Mormon upbringing. That was kind of my shell-shocked exposure to life differently ordered. You know, I got to see uh, queer people, especially queer women, just like being themselves and, and being themselves in a world that we had built for ourselves. And, you know, when I finally uh, came out a few years after that kind of eye-opening experience, I met my wife, who is a, a cis woman in an elevator in Bloomington, Indiana, of all places. We were both studying at the Kinsey Institute. 
And I was pretty early in my transition at, at that point. And we ended up spending a lot of time at the back door in Bloomington, Indiana, which is this fantastic uh, queer bar in the middle of Indiana. And to me, like at that very anxious early stage of my transition and in navigating this like queer relationship that was still new to me, like being newly out and figuring out how to relate to like my wife, not through a heterosexual lens, but through the lens of both of us being women, like having a place like the back door was so important to like have that physical space to just like be and be around people and, and, and see that it was okay to be me. I'm obsessed that you met in an elevator. <laughs> I always joke that we can never break up because our meet cute story is just too it's good. Too good. It's too good. <laughs> um, you know, obviously the last 15 months have been a lot different for a lot of restaurants, bars, stores um across the country. Lisa, what has the last 15 months looked like at Cubbyhole? It's looking good now since I last opened, but when it when this first hope happened. I mean, it was devastating. Um, you know, Cubbyhole, the, the previous owner of Cubbyhole had this thing where we were open 365 days a year, seven days a week, never, ever closed through 9-11, through Sandy, blackouts, blizzards. Even if it was just for a couple of hours, we always stayed open so that, you know, the community, if they were experiencing any kind of, any kind of environmental anxieties, they would have a place to go and feel comfortable. The fact on March 16, 2020, that we had to close our doors for the first time in 27 years, it just, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe like the emotional devastation that I felt. And it, no one could say like when we were going to open, you know, when it was going to happen. And so all that goes through my, ha my head was like, how, what am I going to do? The previous owners always taught me, you know, you have to put away like two months um, savings so that for a rainy day, whatever, which I did. But they were saying, like, this is going to go on a year, a year and a half. I was like, oh, my God. I'd like, what am, how am I going to do this? And I kind of went into sort of a self-pity brooding mode where I was in bed until six. And then I come out and then I'd pour myself a bourbon <laughs> and I'd get these popsicles and I'd stick the popsicle in the bourbon and I'd suck it up. <laughs> and, then, and then I just brewed. That was a, I did that for a good two weeks. And um, then I started getting these messages from from my staff I have a wonderful staff and uh I always knew Cubby was special to people but the messages I was getting was um you know Cubby was where I had my first kiss Cubby is where I met my husband where I met my wife um when my when my dad died I went to Cubby because I knew that I'd find like support there um I just celebrated my 25th anniversary there um Cubby was the last place I went with my wife before she passed away um, and then I get like funny ones, like, you know, I was the one that clogged up your sink that pride five years ago and I should have told you and I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, and it sort of got me out of my funk and I was like, okay, I got to figure out a way to save this. I mean, it's, it's too important. It's too important to me. It's too important to the community. I got to get myself together and do it. And so, um, that's what I did with the help of my staff. We started the GoFundMe and, and and we did. Was there a point where you started to feel like you were turning a corner and 
you started to feel hopeful again for the future of Cubbyhole? Um, yeah, but interestingly enough, it didn't happen when I first when I first opened. After March, we were closed until the beginning of August because we, we were starting from scratch. I mean, we have no kitchen. There was no food. We have no outdoor anything. So I had to find on a budget, you know, all this stuff to serve people outdoors in a very small space outdoors. And um, they kept changing the rules. You know, I, I would buy a nacho machine and then nachos weren't considered food. And then I'd buy a pretzel machine and pretzels weren't considered food. And then I finally I bought a hot dog machine. I was like, how are you going to... Hot dogs have to be food because it's all America. I mean, come on. You can't say hot dog's not a food. So I got a hot dog and I got these little uncrustable peanut butter and jellies. But it was so strict when we first opened with, with every single little rule having to be adhered to. Otherwise, you'd get a violation or, you know, and all this. So it, it was an added stress. And then I had wanted to stay open throughout, but I couldn't get the heating. So I had to close again. December 14th. But after that closure, I, it was, I had a different attitude than I did in March. I knew that I was going to open again. And I knew that people were there to help me. And I, I hadn't realized that. Like people really wanted to do, help me to do whatever I needed to do. And so I had a, a regular customer as a carpenter and she got her lesbian carpenter friends and they came by and they built the cubby hut, which is my outdoor. And then I, uh, I found inexpensive furniture that kind of matches. And then they started relaxing the rules. And um, I was able to open again beginning of April. And it's been fantastic, you know, for what it is. I still can't have people inside, but I feel like that's coming. And, and there's a big light at the end of the tunnel. I would like to defend pretzels and nachos as food. I thought, as I mean, they're food I. to me. <laughs> They even breakfast I, to me on some nights. I mean, some mornings. I was gonna say anyone anyone who's drunkenly scarfed down a huge plate of nachos knows that nachos are a food and a sustenance, an essential food. Um, Samantha, you've been doing a lot of reporting on lesbian bars, including Lisa's, over the past few months. What is the response that you've been seeing across the country from? both bar owners and regulars trying to support these spaces and make sure they make it out on the other side. Yeah, so over at them.us, my uh, colleague Nico Lang uh, spearheaded this amazing project called the Queer Spaces Project, where we've been kind of cataloging uh, the ways in which LGBTQ bars and cafes and restaurants have been trying to make it through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, like, isn't the first challenge, obviously, these spaces are, are facing. Um, I, I believe somewhere close to 40% of LGBTQ bars and nightclubs have closed between 2007 and 2019. Uh, you know, rent is skyrocketing in a lot of places like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. It's getting harder and harder to afford those rents. Um, and, and we need more community support for places to be able to stay in business. Um, but what we've been seeing, you know, is that queer folks are resilient. And um, through the pandemic, GoFundMe's, crowdfunding efforts, merchandise sales, takeout sales. You know, here in Seattle, the Wild Rose, I believe, has, has fittingly been serving tacos uh, takeout. Um, you know, like through those measures, a lot of places have been able to stay afloat and make it to this kind of crucial moment where they can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
It's hard. I mean, it's in order to make it, you really had to sort of reinvent and you had to do it quickly and you had to figure it out and so many frustrations and you just had to just, you know, march through and keep it going. And I know a lot of people that just managed to, they decided they weren't going to open again until um, it was all over. And they ended up not being able to open again or having to sell. And um, I'm talking in, in general, uh, not just lesbian gay, but, but especially lesbian gay bars. With that pivot that you're mentioning, have either of you seen queer spaces or lesbian bars do things during the pandemic that you wish had come earlier and had stayed like things that were exciting that were were attempted during this time that you hope stick around the food thing as soon as the governor said that we we don't have to serve food anymore with alcohol i wrapped up that hot dog machine it's in in the basement and i don't want to see it again (laughs) but the the things that i do like is actually the cubby hut which is our outdoors what i call our outdoor um enclosure our roadway seating and once we open and can have people inside, I don't know that I'm going to have as many tables outside, but I would like to keep some and because it's really nice, especially like a nice summer night or spring night or fall. It's, re- it's really a nice feeling. It's really a good vibe. And I, ne- I didn't think about that when I was putting it together the first time. But now the second time that I open and I'm able to relax a little bit, I noticed how, how nice it actually is. Very European. I know. I feel like we can't dial it back now. We've been treated to the alfresco dining for too long now. Um, Sort of staying on the subject of pivoting for a little longer. Obviously, as we've been saying, lots of bars and clubs have been forced to pivot in order to stay afloat, whether that's through limited outdoor seating or virtual events. But there are some experiences that can't really be recreated. What do you think the communities of lesbian bars and queer spaces have been deprived of during this time that just couldn't be recreated in the same way? Well, I can only speak for Cubby. Cubby, because it's so small and popular, knock wood, the whole idea of social distancing is, you know, anathema to it. So when people are in here, they're, we have a jukebox and people are sort of like near each other. That's the whole point. It's so friendly. And, you, you know, you can talk to the person next to you and you do... There's no way to recreate that. I mean, <laughs> outside, as, as nice as that being outside is, you, you can't create that kind of closeness that you did in the bar. At least, you know, that's the way it was with Cubby. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think about this not just in the context of the pandemic, but in where we are at generally with kind of the vanishing of physical LGBTQ spaces and as you know, I, I'm in my mid-30s now. I feel sort of fortunate to be in this generation where I had access both to like online communities that helped me understand my identity and come out. But then once I got to that place, there were physical places for me to go and be around community and experience that closeness and that proximity that Lisa is talking about. Um, that's so important. And, uh, you know, for me, I think a lot of young folks coming of age during this pandemic might be coming to that place where they're understanding themselves and then they're trying to 
go be around people like them and they they can't because they're closed or, um, you know, because the space just doesn't exist anymore. And I sort of worry about that going into the future. I mean, all of the amazing digital tools that we have for connecting with each other online are are fantastic. But I, I think you can't replace the value of like being able to just go be next to people and 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 safely breathe the same air, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the lesbian bars is just for their historical significance. And, you know, there's always been a connectivity between lesbian bars and, and the celebration of our identities. And it would be a tragedy to lose that, no matter what the circumstances, how the circumstances change around us, still need that. You still need a place to go where there's others like you and to be out and loud and proud and all that. You know, talking about support, people have been pretty active when it comes to supporting small businesses during the pandemic. And you mentioned the GoFundMe, Lisa, for Cubbyhole earlier. But as we start traveling again, I think it's very easy for all of us to kind of fall into the mindset like that everything's open and everything's okay now and the small businesses have made it to the other side. So so they'll make it beyond that. But the reality is that recovery... And just like maintaining what things were like before is is a long road. How should we be supporting queer spaces and lesbian bars in a long-term way as life returns to some semblance of normal? You have to come. It's like you have to come to them. That's like the most important thing. I, I know, Samantha, you were saying that the young people coming out may not have because these places are disappearing. The other side of the coin with that is that I think a lot of lesbians sort of looked at these spaces as kind of old friends. They'll be there when you need them, but stop necessarily supporting them regularly the way they used to. You know, and it could be for, you know, legitimate reasons. You get married, you have children, you you know, you get busy with work. As you, I don't think they make the connection that they're the sustenance. You, you have to come, you have to support us. You have to, you have to be there because, you know, that we're not magically going to be around without you. Yeah, my my motto when it comes to supporting small business, especially LGBTQ small businesses, especially lesbian businesses, is uh, if you want to see it, you have to support it. You know, like you have to go, as Lisa's saying. Um, I, I think there has been a bit of taking for granted that these spaces are there. I think sometimes when things accrue a certain historical or monumental or iconographic significance, people just kind of assume that they're they're permanent, that they're just going to be there, um, which is not the case. And so as these places reopen, you need to go and you need to go and, and like show support, bring friends, order two drinks instead of one, uh, order a, a hot dog if they're still selling hot dogs, <laughs> just anything you can. <laughs> Lisa is shaking her head, no. <laughs> um, but y- you need to kind of redouble that support because many of these places have, you know, back rent that they're going to have to make up. Like reopening is not going to be uh, enough. You need to help reopen and and amplify your support. They're not just going to stick around magically. Yeah, I mean, since we've been closed, it's 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 ironic in a way. The the bar being in disuse, a lot of it, it actually contributed to its kind of breakdown and things that need to be repaired more than when we were using it. And so, you know, as you can imagine, that cost a lot of money to like start repairing things. Like I have to, I, the floor is, 
I don't know what's up with our floor, but I've noticed that it's getting more and more uneven. (laughs) And it's funny, when we were open, I never noticed that before. And then I have to have that fixed. There's there's all sorts of expenses that I think the general population doesn't, unless they're in running a business, don't realize what there is. And and being closed for a long time and neglecting those things, it's going to take a while to get back. To that point, when it comes to actually getting out your wallet and, you know, spending your money at these places and at these small businesses, I would say that I assume extends to when you're visiting other cities too. And it's about being proactive about finding other bars and spaces that you can support other than the one that you rely on in your own city, right? When when my wife and I travel similarly, we, we like to look up you know, an LGBTQ space we can go. We work it into an itinerary, even if we normally wouldn't otherwise. And often it turns into like a highlight of the vacation. You know, I remember we were in uh, Reykjavik in Iceland, actually, and we ended up like watching a drag race watch along in Iceland or something one night of our vacation. And, you know, like, it's just like an easy, simple way that you can show support for the community and, and make memories that you might not have been expecting to make. Are there any specific queer spaces or lesbian bars across the country that you guys want to shout out, obviously besides Cubbyhole, that you really enjoy and want other people, including our listeners, to check out when they are traveling around? In Washington, a league of her own. That was a lot of fun, that place. I'd, so I'd send a shout out there. I'm going to uh, echo the a League of Her Own uh, shout out. I uh, really want to get there because my good friend Laurel, it was when she was living in D.C., kind of like a second home to her. It seems like a really great friendly family, like lesbian family kind of experience and also a place where you can just have a lot of fun. Um, and I'm going to shout out the back door again in Bloomington, Indiana. That place has such a special um, place in my heart and I want to see it continue being amazing and giving, you know, Indiana a little taste of Studio 54. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing uh, your experiences and your suggestions. If people want to keep up with what you're doing on the internet, Lisa, where can they find you and Cubbyhole? The best place to get us is on Instagram. Um, so at Cubbyhole Bar on Instagram has everything, everything you need to know. Perfect. And Samantha, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SLA Writes, and you can read some of the stuff I write and edit at them.us, and especially go look up the Queer Spaces Project, where uh, Nika Lang and a bunch of them.us contributors have been kind of cataloging a lot of what we've been talking about today. Oh, can I also just mention the um, Lesbian Bar Project, which really bought a lot of attention to this as well. Um, There's two women, Elena Street and Erica Rose, who did this documentary. And um, if you go to their lesbianbar.com website, you can donate and most of that money goes to support the remaining lesbian bars. And there's a document, there's one documentary and now there's another one coming out about it. Amazing. We will be sure to link uh, Samantha's work with them and also the Lesbian Bar Project and all of their amazing work in the show notes. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. And me at Lale Hannah. 
Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you both again for joining us and we'll talk to everyone else next week. Bye.